If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Welcome back to the One Voice Podcast. Today we're with a special guest, Abigail Ernesti. She is just an amazing young woman who is blazing some trails around the world. And I'm just really delighted to have you on our show today, Abigail. I think you have so much to offer the survivors that are listening, but also just people who really care about issues of injustice um, in our world. So thank you, Abigail. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I know that you've Um, lived a lot of life in your short amount of years compared to Mary and I. Um, And you've just been really, I guess, for what I've seen, especially on social media, just such a really strong, powerful voice um, when it comes to human trafficking and just issues of injustice. I've just really loved um, watching you, I guess, from a distance. Some of my friends that, you know, are also doing a lot in abolition Um, I know we have a lot of mutual friends and just came across what you've been sharing and saying. And I, I felt really compelled to bring you on because I think in our world today, there's so many voices and our culture is just, you know, so full of people feeling like they have something to say, but they don't really know what they're talking about. (laughs) And, you know, as a sexual abuse survivor myself and Mary as well, um, you know, we come from a place of personal story and I think you're really good at storytelling, but also just at the level of pain and suffering that's in our world and so much division and, and hurt and people, um, just a lack of empathy and willing to walk alongside other people that might not look like them. Um, I just really respect you a lot and I'm just really grateful that you are speaking out and that you are speaking your truth. And, and I think it is going to make a difference. Um, I hope you're seeing that, but so I just kind of wanted to say that from the gates and Abigail, I don't know if you'd be willing to just kind of unpack a little bit of your story and kind of what led you to, you know, being a voice now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. You guys are so rooted in just connection to story because that's really how this, um, the entire reality of anti-human trafficking work came alive to me. Mm. I was really just a typical church kid (laughs) and I thought I would end up like being a wedding planner and baking cake because that's what made me happy in the world. And (laughs) I just became really discontent with the status quo. I was like, so I'm just going to graduate high school and and just mm-hmm. like go to college. Like I just was super discontent with that idea. It didn't sit right with me. I was struggling with my faith a lot. And so I just decided to take a year off. And that's what I did. Mm-hmm. I took a year off and I ended up going to Southeast Asia and uh, worked with an incredible organization that worked with women coming out of the red light districts and brothels. Mm-hmm. And so 
I, I just found myself in this new country, which was like super humid. And I was eating all this <laughs> spicy food and I was getting to know this, these women who had incredible stories and um, everything just came alive to me with that. Just um, God just taught me a lot about how to be an empathetic listener and, mm-hmm. and sort of the, these huge numbers that we hear all the time, right? Like 40 million people are in, in modern day slavery and, they became humans to me. Mm-hmm. And so that was really my my beginning point, my point when things started to, to come alive and I started really thinking about how do I participate in my life of just being a part of building a world where everyone is free, where people have choices, where mm-hmm. people feel heard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do I sort of move beyond this sort of like bystander culture that a lot of times we live in, I think yeah. right now of just, mm-hmm. we watch a lot of things on our screens or we watch a lot of things happen. And we, sometimes I think we feel paralyzed. Like, how do I even get involved? Right. And I just was sort of having this revelation as I was just like in all these situations that I was like very weird because I was just a really average church kid. Um, and so mm-hmm. I had like huge mm-hmm. learning curves, but I found that just like sitting down and having a conversation with someone really changed everything. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that was kind of my initiation into anti-trafficking work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's so, I mean, I really can relate to that. I think that's very common for a lot of people. Once you, you can have all these biases about all kinds of things until you actually sit down with somebody and hear their story and then it changes everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very similar for me, you know, Abigail, I don't know if you know much about my story and I don't know, I haven't talked about it much lately on the podcast, but my anti-trafficking work started very similarly. You know, I wasn't trafficked as a little girl, but I was sexually abused and I always wanted to run away. And so after I began sharing my story about sexual abuse and how I wanted to run away, but I never did, it was then that trafficking victims began to share with me, Nicole, I was abused too in my home. And I did run away. And then that was basically their entry into the world of human trafficking. And so that's where I got just interested and, you know, that the empathy grew and the wanting to understand and, you know, it can feel like this big evil, dark, dark world that you don't want to hear about. But once you meet somebody who's walked that road, it changes everything. It, it doesn't have to if you choose to shut your mind down to it and your heart off. But if you choose to allow your heart to be broken for someone else's story that may have walked a different path than you, you know, then that's where God can use you as a solution to this problem. He can use you to make a difference in the life. And that's, that's so cool that you have had that experience and you were willing to walk into it. I think so many times, especially church women, you know, it's hard to even imagine walking into a situation like that. Like, how do I do it? You know, can God really use me? I, all I do is bake cakes all day. Like you said, you know, but you can, everybody can do it. It's just being willing, I think. And, and I really admire your bravery and your courage to do so. So from that point, then can you continue to walk us through a bit of your story? You know, so now you've, you've kind of gone there, you've sat down, you've listened, you're, you're wanting to understand, you're wanting to do. And where does that take you? Yeah. So that took me, um, so I was on that trip for three months and then, um, I ended up going home and going back to the U S and, um, just decided that I really needed to like put my feet 
on the ground for a while and sort of learn how to cope, like learn how to, um, you know, deal with some of these really hard realities. Yeah. Um, I had been really fortunate in my life up until that point. There were a lot of, there's a lot of things in my life that I hadn't experienced in a lot of um, sort of sheltering I had had growing up mm-hmm. um, in sort of the really conservative world that I did. But so I learned to learn how to cope, which was huge. So I got to go to therapy and really learn um, what it meant to have the emotional tools that I needed to do this work. And I really felt like I needed to also have the spiritual tools and the educational tools. And so I went to college after that and focused on just educating myself. I wanted to get really knowledgeable about social justice, not just in the sphere of anti-trafficking, but in multiple spheres because I saw how there were so many intersectionalities between the reasons that people ended up um, being trafficked. You know, the, Mm -hmm. um, I kind of define trafficking as the exploitation of vulnerability, both of the human heart and of the physical circumstances. Wow. And so I really wanted to understand um, how to address those, those intersectionality points you know, in real time and do it in a culturally competent way. You Mm. know, that was another thing about, about my kind of initiation being in Southeast Asia is, you know, that country, that culture was different than where I'd grown up in East Africa or what it is to live in North America. And so, you Mm. know, religion and, and poverty and all these different things were playing into the equation of how women and girls and transgender people and men were ending up in red light districts. And I wanted to know, like, okay, how do we address that at a systemic mm-hmm. level? Mm-hmm. And so that was really what I went after in school. And I also just like prayed to Jesus, like I need mm-hmm. a mentor. So mm-hmm. that was what, kind of the next like four years was me in school learning, you know, mind, body, spirit, kind of aligning and getting to a really good place and being mentored by survivors of um, the commercial sex industry. So I could really begin to learn how to do this work well, you know, like you said, your, your story is like rooted in your experience. And I think that the best thing that we can do if we're coming at this from a place like I am as an ally where I'm, this is not my personal experience. Mm-hmm. And so I think is that we can really just tune our ears to people who have lived this because they're the experts. And so yeah. just taking that time to really be a listener and to be willing to be wrong, which I've done <laughs> multiple times and do yeah. wrong. And, and I think that the humility that you gain and just being willing to be corrected, you know, we kind of touched on that, like right now, the internet world is having a really hard time yeah, with yeah. Um, sort of this, this huge learning curve that is human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the most beautiful things we can do is just take the time to, to listen to the ones who have gone before us. So that's kind of what happened mm. for me next. And today I'm just continuing on with my work. It's really beautiful because as I've just kind of listened and grown over the years, I've gotten connections to a lot of different people. And so I get today to just like freelance for different nonprofits Mm. and work on the projects that they have where they have need. And that's really amazing because I love getting to serve in the anti-human trafficking world in different ways and particularly touching in on intervention and outreach, which is like where my heartbeat is. Awesome. Wow. I think, what you're saying is so, so good just about the listening piece. And I wonder what you would have to say even about, um, you know, the false narratives that, that are out there, 
you know, would you be willing to unpack a little bit of that? Because I think that's one thing that just gets me so fired up. I mean, mostly lately, just about like racism and just the that's a big learning curve. I mean, we're learning to wash our hands. We're learning that, you know, blacks shouldn't just be killed. Like all these things that are just like so stupid that we're like just now learning and we're just now trying to teach. But, you know, then there's this whole nother end of the spectrum, like the hashtag save the children. Like, you know, people just throw around words. So they don't think about it. They don't, and I don't want to other people at the same time, but it's just so frustrating to me of like people that are working so hard to raise awareness and bring empathy and all these things. And then, you know, a hashtag can get thrown around with no research and it makes people feel better <laughs> that they, you know, shared a missing child poster or something and then their work is done. So I just wondered if you'd be willing to unpack a little of that and just help to even debunk some myths that are out there and especially when it comes to social media. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much to unpack right now because we are sort of in this um, heightened awareness um, mm -hmm. of hum mm -hmm. anti-human trafficking. And so we've, I think in the anti-human trafficking world, the ones who have been here for a while are like, what's going on? We kind of feel, um, you know, like, just overwhelmed honestly i think a lot of people i've heard that again and again and inundated yeah. with all of this sort of myths resurfacing yeah um yeah i think the first myth i mean let's we can touch just a little bit on racism is is that you know the the people who are being trafficked are sort of like white little kids who mm -hmm. are tied up mm -hmm. and that's really promoted by sensationalism and the imagery that people you know see of human trafficking if people type human trafficking right now into Google, um, that's what they're going to see. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the little girl with the hand over her mouth, the yes. dirty hand over the mouth or the tape or, yeah. 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 And I mean, if you begin to ask survivors, you know, um, <laughs> you know, to quote Rebecca Bender, she said, you know, I'm, I was never locked up in a room with a dirty mattress. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in, seven years of, of doing anti-human trafficking work, I've never encountered anyone who was um, physically locked up, but the majority of the people who I have worked with have been people of color. Mm -hmm. And, you mm -hmm. know, those realities do trickle down from racism, from racial disparities, from racial bias. And so it's really important to remember that if we're looking for that white little girl, that we're going to miss the people who are actually being trafficked in our neighborhoods. Right. Um, which to me, it becomes, you know, sort of the paramount thing, right? That this sort of false information wave that is happening right now is mm -hmm. dangerous to the anti-trafficking movement in the sense that it's going to twist people's perception of what trafficking is so that they don't actually see it when mm -hmm. it's in front of their face. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is what becomes sort of the big, the big thing for um, the anti-trafficking movement. I'll say this, I mean, when I went to um, East Southeast Asia, one thing that I was kind of, I, I knew that it wasn't taken. I sort of knew that the illusion of like people being like <laughs> snatched was not super, was not what I would be serving in, but yeah. I still thought that that happened. Like I still mm -hmm. thought that that was a common way mm. that um, trafficking happened. Yeah. And uh, what I learned was that that's not common at all. 
that anywhere between one to five percent of the time people are kidnapped, which is really small. Mm -hmm. Um, And that most people are actually trafficked by someone that they know and someone that they trust. Mm -hmm. So sort of the urban myths that are circulating the internet about like zip ties on your car or people following you in department stores are are not real. And so Mm -hmm. it's really important for people to know that um, to be invested in knowing, you know, who their kids are hanging out with. <laughs> I mm-hmm. have um, 17 nieces and nephews. Wow. Um, I have one is still in the womb uh, all the way up into the 22. <laughs> and so I am very invested in talking to all my siblings about how they're keeping their kids safe awesome. and what that looks like, because there are just so many people on the internet today who mm-hmm. are, genuinely not good and and so it's so important for parents to be aware and making sure you know they have those more than just parental um settings on their technology and their devices but that they actually are building trust with their kids Mm. and they're having those open conversations with them yeah those check-ins and you know kind of the questions to ask about their their use of social media and and their relationships and who they're talking to. And, and also I think just like talking about the vulnerabilities of your own children, you know, our, our kids, mm. they all have them. We all do. We all have vulnerabilities and to be able to address that and at least give children a place to talk about that, I think helps create a safe place where if someone is preying on them, grooming them online, that that could come out. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Awareness and communication. Like those are the two things that I would want parents to really think about how they're investing those things with their kids. Mm-hmm. And not even just parents, like people who have kids in their lives. I know there are a lot of foster parents out there. There are grandparents mm-hmm. who are trying to keep up. You know, there are people who have kids that are living with them. And so, yeah, absolutely. I agree. Mm-hmm. That's really great. And I know it's a lot to even kind of dive into right now, but, you know, our work with our nonprofit that Mary and I run called One Voice for Freedom, we know we focus a lot on the vulnerabilities of youth and, you know, so many youth are really just trying to survive. You know, they're desperate. They come from horrible homes, many from foster care where they're being abused. I mean, it's just such a broken system for youth today. And it's a setup for human traffickers to groom them and begin to exploit them. And um, I wonder if you've even seen anything in that world, because that's where, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time um, creating relationships, providing meals, meeting basic needs um, of homeless and runaway youth over the last few years. And that's really, I feel like has been a, a way to get in front of the problem um, because, you know, vulnerable youth are looking for someone that they trust, someone that gets it, but is not going to just like ship them off to another foster family. Right. But they're going to sit with them and talk with them. And, and a lot of times their stories come out in that way. And, you know, we've seen, we've seen them talk about the traffickers that are grooming them. We've, we've listened to their stories and been able to say, I don't think this is a good situation and hopefully have saved them from that. Um, but yeah, I wonder if you've, if you've seen that, especially um, with like, you know, people of color, um, Honestly, like immigrants, I think are just at yeah. such a vulnerable place. And then the culture and the political climate that we're in today, 
puts them even more at risk, in my opinion. So one of the, I mentioned the intervention and outreach is kind of where my heart is. So yeah. if yeah. you're new to, to human trafficking for your listeners, that looks like um, the people who are really wanting to be in direct service and contact with people who are being victimized in human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And so I have a lot of one-on-one conversations with people. And um, in Dallas, I had a conversation with a girl probably about a year ago now um, who was in a strip club. She was just working and we were chilling out in the dressing room, chatting with her, um, like go in with a group of women and we bring the girls gifts and we sit down and chat with them, build relationship. And we offer them, you know, opportunities to come to a community dinner and um, then build further out relationships out from there and really offer them opportunities to leave the life Mm. if that's what they want. And so- I remember having a conversation with her and we, we like started with the fact that she um, was in foster care mm. for most of her life and that she had run away. And I grew up in my family. We had foster kids in my house, my whole, basically my whole childhood. Mm. And so um, it's so real that, you know, the realities that foster care kids or, um, you know, anyone who's a homeless runaway, right. Um, and then, like we said, you know, people of color, um, LGBTQA youth, mm-hmm. um, anyone who's any child who's, you know, inter- interacting with the welfare system are just more v- vulnerable right. to fall victim to exploitation in general, but absolutely human trafficking. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, I, one of the things I've been learning is that there are at least 150,000 new escort ads posted daily. You know, so that is online ads for online prostitution Mm. and inside those countless numbers um, fit the fit the fit the reality of, you know, foster youth and Mm -hmm. and kids who have run away. And so, you know, there are 25 different types of human trafficking, which we won't go all through today, but (laughs) and that's just in in the U.S. Um, But we definitely know that, you know there are huge disparities. And again, it, it's that exploitation of the human heart and of, of vulnerabilities. You know, one of the things that I experienced in this conversation talking with her is just that, you know, she had spent her whole life and she never had really felt cared about. She didn't feel wanted. She didn't um, have that, you know, no one had spoken life over her, told her how she loved she was, how beautiful she was, how much potential she had. And so if you never have someone who's investing those words into your life, then if someone comes along and they do, whether that is mm. um, a trafficker or whether you're just able to have that attention working in a strip club, mm-hmm. you know, you're very vulnerable to that reality because it's a felt need that we all have. We all mm. want to feel loved. We want, all want to feel like we belong. Mm-hmm. And then the reality of circumstance, right? Like if this pandemic had hit and I didn't have a house to come home to mm-hmm. um, with parents and like socioeconomic security, I would have ended up in a very different situation than what I'm in right now. And Mm -hmm. so when people are aging out of foster care, that's very similar. You know, they are in a position of vulnerability. They don't Mm -hmm. have, they don't have a fallback plan of someone who is, you know, Mm -hmm. going to just catch them like many of us are fortunate enough to have. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. I think just opening our eyes to like, what is the like needs in our community? in Our circles. And I know in the times right now, it's really hard. People have different boundaries. Mm-hmm. But I still think there are a lot of really awesome ways that you can serve people. You know, it's just like, right. what would be the impact if you worked on like one of those vulnerabilities that this amazing girl had that I was sitting in the, the dress dressing club with? Like, 
what would have been the impact if somebody had just said, you know what, you're super loved. Mm -hmm. and I, I care about you and I'd love for you to come to us, you know, like a socially distanced picnic in my backyard Mm -hmm. or something. Like if somebody had just taken the time and the initiative to, Mm -hmm. to say like, you matter. And I think that that's so important. And I also want to add this too. I just, I was sitting with her and I was chatting and, and she was explaining she, of the different choices, choices, which I use that word very loosely and I don't really like using it because I think that, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that, that come into choice. Yeah. Um, and she didn't really have a lot of choices. So one of the reasons she ended up, I'll say it that way, um, where she was is she just really didn't feel that she was cut out for the military. And she mm-hmm. knew that it was kind of the, like, this was, this was felt to her like the option where she got to stay near her little sister who was still in foster care. Mm-hmm. And so I think just realizing again, kind of coming back to having those conversations with, um, people who are experienced, like what is their real experience? What is their real life? Leaning in Mm -hmm. and listening to that. I think we grow so much empathy from just those simple moments. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to do outreach and intervention part of anti-human trafficking. But I think being willing to listen to the stories of all the incredible survivors who are speaking now, you know, and who are, their stories are online and investing in that time to listen to them and time to read their autobiographies to really get to know like what does modern day slavery look like right and especially domestically you know so often addiction is involved and i think a lot of times especially people in the church have a hard time understanding how you know someone could become addicted you know or how addiction plays a role a huge role in human trafficking and um leading traffickers to exploit them all the time and creating, you know, trauma bonds with them and all this. You don't understand it, especially coming from the church. But that's where I think the sitting down and listening makes such a difference (laughs) because when you hear how it started, you know, what was the, the need, you know, the need to just know that I matter, the need to, to know that I didn't have to numb this pain this way that, you know, it could have come this way, but I didn't have that resource available to me. The only thing I had was this drug and this person who was giving it to me, you know, and it, it's once we can sit down and listen, everything just really changes. I wonder, Abigail, where did you learn how to have these conversations? How did you learn how to to listen, how to have empathy? Is this like something that came out of a personal experience for you? Was was it taught to you even in the church? I'm just wondering, like, this is something I am even trying to teach the adults like that were in my life. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> my parents, my grandparents, like how do you how did you learn this stuff? So in my first experience when I was in Southeast Asia, I really realized I did not have the answer. Like Mm -hmm. I had no idea how to solve, fix like any situation that I was seeing because there were so many layers Yeah, and I didn't have the tools. And Mm -hmm. so I realized just that the only position I was going to be able to take was one of listener. Mm -hmm. And then as I started in my life to unpack some of my own trauma, both that happened while I was there and then also just from my life previously that I at that time just hadn't seen and wasn't woken up um, because we know like the body keeps score that (laughs) I really started to see that like what I was most gifted by was when somebody would just like listen to what Mm. I was experiencing. Mm. And so I think it's that 
it's that almost this shift that has to happen in our hearts where we we recognize, you know, Maya Angelou has this beautiful poetry that she says, she says, nothing human can be alien to me. Mm-hmm. And so it is though, like, if we think of every human experience, that it can't be foreign to us because another human being went through it. Mm-hmm. So if we kind of embody that, and that's something I really put t- energy into to embodying that, that all of these emotions and experiences that someone has, someone who is walking through prostitution and they can't take it a day mo- day longer because they're being prostituted. And so now they're addicted because they want to numb out. Well, what pain have I had in my life that I've wanted to numb? Right. Because I feel like our pain a lot of times is our commonality. Mm-hmm. We can all think of a moment where we felt unimportant. We can all think of a moment where we felt unwanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like pretty much every human soul is well acquainted with rejection. Yeah. And so when we're listening to someone's story, having that empathy to tap into that moment, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to really allow ourselves to be like this emotion that they're experiencing, it just can't be foreign to me. Right. I'm another human being. And the impact I think that has on another soul is that they feel known and they feel loved. Yeah. And, and I think that, that what we if, all want. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's what we all want. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was just a, it was something that I really learned when I started to encounter situations that I just had literally no idea how to walk through in my own heart and in mm-hmm. the circumstances I was seeing while I was working in these red light districts and brothels. Well, absolutely, though, that it reminds me of something I wrote in one of my books. I don't know which one it was, but just people in pain don't need answers. They just need to be heard, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that there's so much more power in just having someone sit and listen to you. And that's really cool how you say you were able to like almost receive that gift and and walk that gift out in your life because the the problem was bigger than you knew how to solve it. It was like, it was almost so humbling to you that that's what forced you to sit and listen rather than speak. Yes. And, you know, there's so much power in finding our voice and speaking, but that's about our experiences um, for our healing. But when it comes to other people's pain, what they need is not our story. <laughs> they mm-hmm. just need to be able to tell theirs. And that's yeah. such a gift that you've been giving um, to survivors over and over again, Abigail. I'm just so, so delighted that our paths cross. You are an amazing, amazing young woman. And I'm excited to see what God continues to do with you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you guys so much. I'm so glad we got to have this conversation. I just, I love your work and I so appreciate people who are in this space and mm-hmm. making room to, you know, sit in and lean in and to, to hear other people's stories empathetically. So yeah, that's, I'm so glad we got to have this chat. Awesome, Abigail. Wow. Well, how can other people connect with you, follow you? Where are you at on the web? Yes. So I mostly hang out on Instagram. I know got it's it. super typical, um, but yeah. <laughs> so um, my name on there is Abigail. So A-B-I-G-A-I-L and then Ernestie with no space. E-E-R-N-I-S-S-E. And please feel free to stop by, um, slide into the DMs. I would love to chat with you. And yeah, soon I will be launching my blog um, at the end of November. So the link for that will be in my profile as well, which will just be me unpacking more stories and 
about um, my work in the anti-human trafficking world. So yeah. Amazing. Yes. And you like are so photogenic, like you're gorgeous. <laughs> so Aww. your Instagram is just beautiful. You're a great photographer too. I mean, just your words, your pictures, your face, it's all just good. <laughs> so I do encourage our listeners to go make a follow there and connect um, if this really impacted you. Thank you, Abigail. You are such a light in this world. We're so grateful for you. Thank you guys so much. You're so kind. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.